Gracious Father, I ask now that as we open up your word, that we would know in it uh, how good a father you are, uh, how gracious you are to us, how you shepherd us, how your will for us is always better than what we would have had your will be. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work to make us confident in you, restful in you, and hopeful in you and your good news until uh, we see Jesus. Pray in his name. Amen. Please take a seat. Kids, kids, name for me someone that it is easy for you to talk to. Who is it easy for you to talk to? God. I hope so. Who, who, what person would it be easy to talk to? Your, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister? Why is it easy to talk to them? Because you, you, yeah, you know them really well, right? You know, you kind of know what they're going to say when you talk to them. You know what to expect. You trust them. Who is someone who it's hard to talk to? Who is it hard to talk to? Maybe somebody you don't know very well. Somebody that you've just met. Somebody where you feel awkward. Maybe somebody that you don't really trust yet. Those are people that are hard to talk to. Now, I'm glad that some people say it's easy to talk to God. Does it sometimes feel hard to talk to God? When you're especially on your own, is it hard to talk to God? Sometimes it's so hard that we don't do it very much. We only do it when we have to or when our parents say it's time to talk to God. When you pray on your own, does it feel like you're talking to somebody you know well or somebody you don't know well? Sometimes when we pray, the reason that we don't like to talk to God is we don't feel like we know God very well. We don't know who he is. We don't know who God, what God likes. We don't know the things that God does. So talking to God feels more like talking to a stranger than it feels like talking to your family. When it's supposed to feel like talking to your father, isn't it? That's what God wants us to call him when we pray. What would be good ways for you to know God better? What are ways that God gave you to know God better? Did he, give you the, did he give you his own words to know him better in the Bible? Did he give you a church family? Did he give you moms and dads? Yeah. And the biggest gift that God gave you to know him better is Jesus. That's the gift when God became your father. When we didn't have to know God, we could have been far away from him, but he sent Jesus to be treated like his enemy so that he could be your dad. That's where we learn how much God loves us, too. God shows us, look how I love you. Look what a good father I am. We can use those gifts God gave us to know him like a father, to pray to him like a father. Let's look at Mark, Mark chapter 9, and see what Jesus shows us about knowing God, about faith in God, and about talking to God in prayer. Mark chapter 9. 
verse 14. Now this event takes place right after the transfiguration. Jesus and his three disciples are coming down the mountain after the transfiguration, the events we heard about last week, and they come down to a real big commotion. There's a big mess at the bottom of the mountain, like Moses coming down with the tablets to find chaos. There's this great crowd. The disciples are fighting with the scribes. There's a big crowd of people gathered around. They don't know what to think. And in the middle is a dad and his son. So let's read what Jesus finds at the bottom of the mountain. Mark 9, 14 to 32. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy and he fell to the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for him, the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he rose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. This is God's word. So this father has brought his son to Jesus, hoping to cast out a demon that has been plaguing his son terribly since he was young. So instead, he finds the disciples, and he asks if they can help. And it makes sense. The disciples have some reason to think that they should be able to help this boy. Jesus has given them authority to cast out demons before. But here, they fail, and those scribes are watching, and that must just feel terrible for the disciples. The scribes are watching, and they're just thrilled that the disciples fail, and they start fighting with them about whether they should have tried to cast out a demon in the first place, and why it clearly hasn't worked. And Jesus comes down and finds this chaotic commotion as a crowd has gathered around in this argument. Jesus' response to this mess that he finds is a lament. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Think of how this chaotic scene contrasts with what Jesus and Peter and James and John were just experiencing on top of the mountain. 
that glorious presence of God. They got this glimpse into the future kingdom of Jesus. They saw the joy and the hope that Jesus himself was looking forward to being revealed when all of his earthly ministry was complete. And they come down the mountain and find the mess that he is currently bearing with. And it is a mess of faithlessness. Just a mess of faithlessness. First, you've got the disciples who relied upon their ability to help this boy and were unable. And over the next few weeks, you're going to see how much the disciples are still battling their own pride, their own sense of self-importance and self-sufficiency, their inability to see who Jesus really is and what it means to be a part of his kingdom. The scribes, of course, are there hoping that Jesus' followers will fail, hoping that Jesus will be a failure, looking for any opportunity to uh, hurt or harm the Messiah. And of course, the crowds are there, and we know that they're often there looking for a scene, looking for maybe some material benefit, whether Jesus is going to create more food for them, whether he can heal them, of course, whether they can just see some spectacle. At the end of this story, we see Jesus and his disciples passing through Galilee. And Jesus, again, this is not the first time, explains to him, he is the Son of Man, the Messiah, so this is why he came, to die and rise again. Casting out demons, healing the sick, feeding people, all of that is just meant to point, in the same way his parables point, to this real reason why Jesus has come, what it means that he's the Messiah. All of it is meant to tell us he is here to suffer and die and rise again and bring in the eternal kingdom of heaven, and the disciples just don't get it. They don't get it, and they're too nervous to even ask about it. They, don't, they, they can't figure it out right now. Just like the crowds, they are struggling to fathom how the true mission of the Messiah could be suffering and dying, even after all that he's shown and taught. And this highlights for us the loneliness of Jesus' ministry. Jesus alone in the world really understands right now not just who he is, but what he's come to do. He alone knows what's ahead of him and what he's going to face, Any, any. Uh, any attempt to help others understand at this point has been met with faithlessness. Jesus is walking the road to the cross alone, patiently bearing with confusion from his friends and followers and opposition, patiently, but he feels that. He feels the faithlessness around him. As John says in his gospel, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. That's a part of the suffering of Jesus. They had no joy or confidence in what he had come to offer them, even as he had come to offer them the greatest gift that anyone in history could ever receive. They can only see what they want from him right now. The father of the possessed boy comes forward and just wonderfully articulates this lack of faith. He states it out loud. He brings his son forward and says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This man's confidence was likely shaken. He just watched Jesus' disciples fail to do what he brought his son to Jesus to do. He's likely brought his son to other people who have failed to heal his son. And now Jesus is here, but the father is just not sure whether Jesus is any different from his disciples. Here are the men who teach what Jesus says. They can't do it. And here's the man. Can he do it? He's treating Jesus like just another man. So he really only has the confidence to say, if you can do anything, I'd appreciate it. 
going forward in Mark's gospel, you're not going to see many more miracles where Jesus demonstrates who he is. The evidence is given. All that is necessary is on the table. For Jesus, the case has been made. And yet, here is this father still wondering if Jesus is able to do what he asks. People know that this this is the man who cast out a legion of demons. This is the man who has raised up the dead, yet still this man can only manage to say, if you are able to do anything. Jesus picks up on that in his reply. You can hear that weariness of his lament continuing over in this response, if you can. If. All things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus is picking up there on a phrase that we find often in the Bible. You heard it in in Jeremiah just now. It's one that Jesus himself uses often. The phrase usually says, all things are possible with God. We've heard all the way back to God's promise to Abraham that Isaac would come. Is anything too hard for God? All things are possible for God. Jesus, of course, is pointing again to his own divinity, telling the man, I am God, and all things are possible for those who believe in Jesus, because all things are possible for those who have faith in God. This father should have known both the power and the character of the God who he had brought his son to. Now we come to the same God when we pray, the God who is both infinitely powerful and loves to give good gifts to his children. Does this mean that faith is a superpower that you can use to get what you want from God? Or that faith is some kind of currency where when you save up enough faith, you can put it in the heavenly uh, concession machine and get out the things that you order? Jesus has already told his followers they're going to suffer. I doubt that that's something they were praying for. Consider another time Jesus uses the phrase, all things are possible. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane on the way to the cross. He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Would any of us ever be able to pray with more faith than Jesus? And yet, Jesus prays not only according to God's power, but according to God's will, according to God's character. In this case, he knows at the cross that it is God's good, compassionate, gracious will that Jesus would suffer and die, that he would take the cup of wrath, to bring salvation to us and resurrected glory to Jesus. So faith means not just understanding God's power, what he is able to do, but knowing his will, knowing who he is. Do you know what God is capable of? Do you know what God loves to do? Do you know what his plan is for his people? Do you understand that enough that you could come to him in faith, confident not just in what he is capable of, but what he promises to do. It's hard to talk about faith without talking about prayer, isn't it? It's hard to talk about the things you trust in God for without thinking about how we come to God with those needs. And you see that connection in this passage as well. At the end of the story, when the disciples ask, why couldn't we cast out the demons? Jesus replies, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
Think about that for a moment. This phrase is not actually that different than what Jesus said to the boy's father. All things are possible for him who believes. Because prayer is exercising our faith. All things are possible for God for those who believe. This thing that God alone can do, it is only possible for you through prayer. Calvin calls prayer the chief exercise of faith. The best way for you to know your own faith is to think about your prayer. Our failure or inability to pray speaks to a weakness of faith. It might reveal that you're self-reliant. You don't really, maybe you don't really believe God's promises. Maybe you aren't sure that he actually cares about his children. Michael Reeves says, prayerlessness is practical atheism. Prayerlessness is practical atheism, demonstrating a lack of belief in God. The disciples' lack of prayer shows that they had forgotten that their authority to cast out demons was only ever a gift from God. They were treating God's gifts like something that were now just theirs to wield according to their will. And how often do Christians fall into this trap, forgetting that every good thing is a gift from God, starting to use those gifts, forgetting about the glory of the one who has given them, forgetting even our dependence upon him for those gifts to continue. So God reminds the disciples of their own weakness and inability by their failure to cast out this demon. Jesus reminds them they had forgotten to pray. They had forgotten to depend on God for what they should have known he alone could do. A failure to pray does show a failure of faith in God. But the content of our prayers can also speak to the state of our faith. The Apostle James points out two ways that our prayers can reveal a sickness or a feebleness in our faith. James 1, 5 to 8 says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James points to doubting as a lack of faith. He tells his readers, here is something good that God wants you to have, wisdom. Wisdom is, it's not praying for a new sports car. Wisdom is something that God has said he gives to his children. It is a promise from God. But James warns his readers, when God has promised something, to doubt whether he can do that shows that we don't really trust in his power. We don't trust in who God is. We're like that father of the demon-possessed boy. God, if you're able to do anything, then do what you've said you will do. James also talks about asking God for things apart from his will. James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James tells the church, why are your prayers not being answered? Because the things you're praying for are for the sake of your own wicked nature that drives you away from God. There are many things even that it's not necessarily wrong to pray for, like our finances, our health, and our family. But James says if the whole point is to drive you away from giving glory to God, to satisfy your passions, so you can be consumed with yourself, so you can become more of an idolater, then you're praying against God's will. You're praying against his promises. 
And why would he grant a prayer to drive you away from himself? So these two problems in prayer are connected. They both show problems in faith. We fail to know who God is. We fail to trust who God is. We fail to know what God wants, what he wills. We don't know what we are meant to call on him for. We come to him and we call him father, but he's a father that many of us barely know or understand. In many cases, we just supply our own ideas of what he ought to be. Our prayer is self-glorifying. It is hard to make requests of a father that you have no relationship with. Think of a son coming to his father and saying, Dad, thank you so much for helping me crush my brother at basketball. I just love when you help me win and you make him lose. Dad, I need $600 for cigarettes and an Xbox so that I don't have to spend any time with you. Any father who hears their son talk like that is going to say, does my kid know me? Is, does my kid know who he's speaking to? My, my, ch- my own child is talking to me like I am a different father, a much worse father than I am. He's talking to me like I'm a bad father. A son who doesn't know what his father wants to give him and who doesn't appreciate or understand what his father has already done for him, is a son who is probably going to get more and more distant from his father. And when we pray to God like we don't know him, doubting that he is able to do what he promises, not loving what he's promised and asking only for things that would benefit our passions, when we pray to God like that, we are going to increasingly feel like God's a God that just doesn't answer prayer. And we're going to get distant from him until we grow agnostic or atheistic in our prayerlessness. It's going to be a chore that we just don't have confidence in. Friends, if Jesus were among us, how much reason would he have to lament the faithlessness of this generation? We have more access to God than perhaps anyone else in the world and in history. And yet so many of us are content with a feeble, distant relationship with God. Our response to knowing, wanting to know God better is, I don't go in for theology. Or I just leave that to other people. We have distant faith, weak, not confidence in God. And yet look at the zeal that we pour into our hobbies, that we pour into entertainment into the news and politics and sports statistics. And it is impossible to muster up that kind of earnestness when we think of God. How many whole churches have fallen into this trap? Entire churches praying for things that benefit human passions. No interest or confidence in what God promises. Churches drifting, whole churches into agnosticism and atheism. Is it not wrong for us? Would it be wrong for us to lament like Jesus did? Oh, Lord, how long will you put up with such a faithless generation until Jesus returns and makes everything right? Now, when Jesus corrects the father of this boy for his faithlessness, the father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. I expect many of us hear that cry and it just echoes through us. Help my unbelief. That might be a cry for a greater assurance of faith. 
greater confidence in God. But we would also say we should be careful that we are not always looking into ourselves, becoming morbidly introspective. Sometimes we're always trying to measure our faith like we're taking our temperature, right? How much is my faith today? Have I got the appropriate quantity of faith to get what I pray for? Now that just drives us back to looking at ourselves rather than God. It drives us back to that vending machine idea of prayer and faith. Have I got enough to get, to get the good things God does? Now you're actually doubting God's power. Or we start confusing our faith with our emotions. We're always trying to figure out, do I feel faithful today? I felt really faithful when I was at that Christian concert where all my emotions were being played on. I don't feel very faithful when I'm having a difficult situation at work. But now, our faith has just become our emotions. As we have looked at the weak faith of the boy's father, the weak faith of the apostles... I don't think Jesus was thinking about the quantity of faith that these people had. It was their lack of understanding of what they were meant to have faith in. They didn't understand who they were meant to have faith in. This means that for Jesus, to help unbelief is not to level up the Father's faith. It is to better reveal himself so that the Father might better trust in him. For us to grow in faith is less about looking into ourselves and more about looking at the one who we are meant to have faith in. Imagine you are about to cross a bridge over a very wide chasm. So wide that you do not feel very faithful about whether or not you will get to the other side. What should you do should you sit down and have a think about how you're feeling about the bridge? A long conversation with myself about my feelings about whether or not I can get across this chasm. And if I can talk my feelings into, uh, into, into feeling more bold, then I'll get across. No, what should you examine? Examine the bridge. Take a long, hard look at that bridge. If you want to, go call your friend who's an engineer and ask him about the bridge. Look at the structure, look at the supports. Conduct a test if you'd like to. Go get a bowling ball and roll it across and see how that goes. Your confidence in the bridge is going to grow much more quickly by examining the bridge than examining yourself. When you lack confidence in God, when there is no confidence in your prayer, it might be true that the problem is your doubts and your weaknesses, but the answer to that weakness is to better examine and know the object of faith. Learn who God is. One of the good prayers that he promises is to pray that you would know him better, that you would understand better who he is. Be earnest as you come to his word, as you come to his church. I don't want to know my idea of God. I want you, God, to show me who you actually are, to inform me of the God who I claim to have faith in. Comfort your doubt with who God is. Confront your doubt with who God is. And one of the things that you need to remember as you confront your weakness of faith, one of the first things to remember is that God is not waiting for you to have greater faith before he is gracious to you. He is not waiting until you are better at praying 
till you've come back with more assurance to give his promises to you. Now it is true that he delights to answer prayer. He loves when his children call out to him and he loves to respond with greater joy in who he is. Enjoyment of that richer relationship with the sweet gifts of a father. He is a father who answers prayer. Do not use God's power or his sovereignty as his plan as a reason why you have given up calling upon a father who is earnest that you would pray so that he might be gracious to you in your prayer. But he is already your father regardless of whether you pray well or poorly. He is your father regardless of whether you feel restful and good about that or, or, or weak and wavering in your confidence. What does Jesus do for this father after he points out a weakness in the father's faith? Does he tell him, go away, come back when you've got a greater quantity of faith? I am unable to do anything for you until you're worthy of it. No, he doesn't. What does he do for this father who cries out, help my unbelief? He heals his son. He casts out this demon. And again, look at what the casting out of this demon is just meant to point to. Just a glimpse of. Jesus took this young boy who was bound in slavery his entire life. Who was bound by the devil who was being controlled evil and he sets him free and he doesn't do that because anybody came forward who was worthy for that to happen when God talks through his word about all things being possible for him he tells us what he is ready to do what he loves to do he loved to carry out his plan by bringing Isaac into the world. He loved to carry out his plan by bringing Jesus into the world. George prayed right through those things that he told Jeremiah to be confident about. God's faithfulness to his people, to discipline them, to save them. And Jesus is going to answer his disciples in just a few passages. All things are possible with God. And their question is, who then can be saved? That is what God delights to do. And his salvation is such that it's not a response to those who have the, an, an, a great enough quantity of faith. It's not a gift for those who have earned it. That is the whole point of salvation being salvation. It is for weak sinners. It is for those who are bound in slavery, for those who cannot muster the faith to save themselves. This morning, you might still be distant from God because you are examining yourself. You are asking the question whether or not you are faithful enough. Whether or not you have put together enough in and of yourself. Whether you see enough in your emotions to be able to say that you are God's child. You're looking in the wrong direction. The question is, do you know who Jesus is? Because if you confess with your mouth that he is Savior and Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not whether you believe enough in that. Do you believe that? Is that true? Then you are saved. And Christian, do not take out your barometer every day to determine whether or not you are God's child. 
Don't constantly run this diagnostic of what you can muster to figure out whether or not you belong to God. Wake up every morning and look at God. Wake up every morning and preach the gospel to yourself. This is who my God is. This is what my God has done. That is who I have faith in. Know him better. He delights that you would know him better. He has given you every gift to know him better. And then yes, your faith and your rest and your confidence and assurance in God will be grown as he grows it through his good gifts. You do not become God's child by praying well enough. You are God's child. Pray to him. This is who your God is. Trust in him. And if you do not yet know this father, don't look into yourself to figure out whether or not he should be your father. See who Jesus is here. Christ who bears with such a faithless, weak generation and then comes among them in their chaos of faithfulness and sets captives free and takes those who are enslaved to darkness and embraces them as children of his good father. Doesn't that make you want to pray? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus. Father, we thank you that we do not need to look into ourselves to ask whether or not we belong to you. We simply ask is our trust in Christ. Father, may we look to him. And Father, as we think about what it means to be helped in our unbelief, I pray that it would be a desire to know you better, to be more restful and confident in who you are and what you do. Thank you, Father, that you do not wait for us to be worthy. Thank you that you are a good father, an unchangingly good father, no matter what happens, no matter what comes, no matter who we are. I pray, Father, that if there are those who do not know you as a father here, I pray that they would see you as you are, your power, your will, and that will culminating in your perfect plan to send Jesus to save weak, faithless enemies of God and make them yours. And I pray, Father, that we would be built up in prayer, in confidence in who you are, that we would know you as a father, that we would come to you not as some father of our own design, but as the better, more wonderful father that you truly are. And that we would delight to see you answer those prayers that we bring to you. We praise you for your goodness and your graciousness to us through Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Please.